Good morning. It's good to see you this morning, to be with you and to worship God with you. It is a joy to have that opportunity and the good opportunity that we have now to open up God's Word and to study from it. Uh, we are coming up to the very end of this year, 2021. We have just a few weeks left. And as you know, generally speaking, it seems as if these few weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas move very, very quickly. And so here we are at the end of this year. And as I was thinking this week about what to preach about, and really the last couple of sermons that I have left in this year, I've made the decision to kind of be reflective a little bit. To be reflective in kind of a generalized way, at least here this morning. And for us to consider, because I think in a lot of ways, as we get to the end of a year, uh, mentally we're kind of in tune to be reflective in some way. That's just the way that we're built. I think mentally we're, we're in a good place to be able to look back and to be able to think deeply about where we are specifically, where we're sitting, where we're standing, where we're at as we've gotten now to the end of another year. And so I'm going to take advantage of that mentality a little bit in my last couple of lessons and kind of play off of that to, to, to kind of help us to think and to be reflective in some areas. And so what we're going to do over the last couple of lessons that I have this year is for us to be thinking about and to be considering and be sharing some what I'll reference as kind of big ticket reflections. And we're going to start this morning with two of them, both taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there are lots of reflective moments, lots of things to consider, lots of things to think about, certainly things pertaining to the life that we're living. And when I study through, and when I read through the book of Ecclesiastes, although there are a lot of very specific things found there, I think there can, in in some ways, be broken down the book itself to two big-ticket reflections. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to break it down into two things, two big-ticket reflections that I think can help. Where we're going to start? Let's start at the very beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You've been in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 at the end. I'm going to ask you to go to the very beginning of this book. As the writer begins in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3, it's very unique in the way that he talks about life here. We're going to contrast that with life that someone else talks about, but I want you to take notice about what the writer says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Well, Solomon, the writer of this book, in every way, loved to use the word vanity. He uses it 38 times in just these 12 chapters. And if we think about that word in and of itself, it's important for us to have a pretty good understanding about what that word means. It is used so often, we really need to have the concept about what vanity is all about. And so just by way of definition, it is this emptiness, futility, vapor. What I really like, this line, that which 
vanishes quickly and leaves nothing behind. It is this idea, and Solomon, as he is writing this book, as he opens it up, he says, all is vanity. That's what this life offers. Everything in this life, everything that this life has to offer is vanity. Now, I want you to think about the significance and the bigness of that phrase. All that this life has to offer is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But I want to contrast that. There are things said in other spots about this life, about life in general, that's different from this. I want to talk about this morning why that is. For instance, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus himself says this, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The Apostle Paul will say in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 58, at the very conclusion of as that book is kind of winding down, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want you to consider how different what Jesus says and how different what Paul says than what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Now, the easy answer is there for us. We're not going to get complicated with it. It's there to grasp, and so I'm going to ask you to grab hold of it. Take the easy way on why it is that Solomon says one thing and why it is that Jesus and Paul are saying something that completely sounds different. The point that they make is that life isn't vain, if you live it not according to this world, but according to the will of God. Now, ultimately, that's the place that Solomon gets in his book, as we saw at the very end in Ecclesiastes 12, as we've read it already. But the point that's being made, certainly from Jesus and certainly from Paul, is that there is good that comes. There is good that can be found. But it isn't a life according to the way the world dictates. It is a life according to the way that God dictates. And so you have certainly in the book of Ecclesiastes bookends in a lot of ways. There in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this idea of vanity of vanities as it even closes with that idea. Back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we've read, we've read this kind of already, but in chapter 12 and verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. But he reminds us in those verses that we've read already in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, is he is there to help us on how we should approach the book even. I really, really like verse 11 of chapter 12. We don't talk about it very often. We don't talk about it very often because we are so quickly to get to verse 13. And verse 13 is important. We know it's important because, hey, this is the conclusion. But verse 11, verse 11 is an incredible picture where it's set up for us in verse 10 where it says, The preacher sought to find acceptable words, what was written, 
was upright, words of truth. He's saying, well, what I have provided here in this book, what is provided for you is something that can help. And then the incredible picture that you have in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, prodding sticks, things to push us along, things to keep us in line. Things to put us in the place that we need to be put. He says the words of the wise, they are like goads. They are like prodding sticks to, to prod us along in our thinking. And he adds the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails holding us together. Maybe even an application to pin something on. He says, this work is inspired, was guided by the one shepherd. And so as we study through this book of Ecclesiastes, as we study through all of the pages that we have, they are given there to help us stay on the path. So I make mention at the beginning. We think about the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of specific things that happen for sure. But for me, there are two massive reflective points, two things, two big ticket items that for us, even as we close this year, are important for us to reflect upon that can ultimately make big differences for us. And so what we have in the very outset is this number one. No matter how much wealth, education, social prestige that you may have, Life without God is futile. You know, it's interesting as Solomon writes through the book of Ecclesiastes and he explains and he kind of dissects and diagrams even the culture that he's living in. And it's interesting as we study about that culture and about the people that are there and we think about our culture and the people that we spend our time with, there isn't that much difference. Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes and he makes note of injustices made to all kinds of people. He writes about crooked politics. He, he writes about incompetent leaders. He writes about the guilty who are allowed to commit even more crime. He writes about materialism that is rampant in all sections of society. And we think about those kinds of things and is that culture, is that world any different than the world that we live in now? It isn't. We have all of those things. And so when we think about what Solomon has to say and the point that he makes, one of the big ticket reflections is that idea. It doesn't matter how much money that we accrue. It doesn't matter how many letters that we put at the end of our name because of the education that we have had. It doesn't matter our level of popularity in this world. How many people know who I am and know what I do and look up to me in that way? doesn't matter any of those things. The only thing that matters is our relationship to God. If God isn't in those things, they make no difference. It's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. The powerful point where he says in a question, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I don't know what that would look like. 
I mean, think about the bigness of that phrase. What would it profit if a man would gain the whole world but lose his own soul? How often it is that we are tempted and fall to that temptation to trade our souls in for far, far less than the whole world. What profit is there? What profit is there if we do something like that? Solomon describes a life that he had in the book of Ecclesiastes in which he had everything. That he had everything. Anything that his eyes desired, anything that his thought was, anything that he wanted to do, any place that he wanted to go, in reality, he had all of those things, but yet a life that was empty. And what we need to understand for us today, as we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we study about all of the specifics that pertain to this big, huge point that's up here on the board, is that there is simply no need to repeat those experiments. Let's accept those conclusions. Let's avoid the pain and the heartache that comes with experimenting in the laboratory of life. We don't need to do that. Those experiments have already happened. We are able to see and we are able to understand that it doesn't make a difference how much money we have or how much education we have or how much popularity we have. Life without God is futile. So we're going to do our own experiment this morning. We're going to do our own experiment. Everyone can participate. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to put a picture of uh, someone up on the screen. And if you recognize this gentleman just by his picture, if you recognize him, I just want you to raise your hand. That's it. You don't have to say, I know that guy. You don't have to say anything. Like, I just want you to just quietly raise your hand. I'm going to give you his picture. If you know who it is, raise your hand so that we can see how we're doing. Who knows who this guy is? Raise your hand if you know who this guy is. All right, lots of folks know who this guy is. I'm going to put his name next to his picture. If you recognize his name, not as much his picture, but if you recognize his name, raise your hand. And the name of this guy is Jeff Bezos. You know him. He is the ruler of the world currently. Right? That's what we think. He is the owner of Amazon. He's the ruler of the world. All right? Everybody do that again. If you know who Jeff Bezos is, raise your hand. Nice and high so we can see, look around. You know, for the most part, everybody knows who this guy is, right? You should. He's very current. He is currently, in our country, has the most money in our country than anyone else. I want you to think about that. He's not one of the most. He doesn't have some of. He has the most money. He is number one on the list. He is the richest person that there is today. And because it's today, we all know who he is. Almost, if not every person here, 307 of us, had their hand held high. Let's do a little experiment. Raise your hand if you recognize this guy by his his picture. All right, anybody? A couple smattering. 
Not just a couple of, literally just a couple of you. You know who this guy is. I'm going to give you his name. All right, and this time, if you even recognize his name, raise your hand. Maybe his picture, that would be tricky. It's black and white. He's an older fella. But what about his name? His name is H.L. Hunt. If that name rings a bell, raise your hand. Oh, a couple more. Well, listen, H.L. Hunt in 1950 had more money in this country than anybody else. And we're sitting here and we have no idea who this guy is. Not just that he was a rich fella, but he had more money than everybody. Number one on the list. And we're sitting here now, 70 years ago, but we have no idea who this guy is. But you might be sitting there and say, but listen, that was 70 years ago. That's a long time. Okay, I'll play that game as well. Raise your hand if you know this guy. Anybody? Raise your hand. Hi, you know this guy? Surely. Surely we know who this guy is, right? Nope. We had a couple of H.L. Hunts. That's surprising, but none for this guy. I'm going to give you his name. This guy's name is John Klug. And now raise your hand if that name sounds familiar. Like two. In 1990, raise your hand if you were alive in 1990. Lots of people. In 1990, not that long ago, right? He was the richest person in this country. He had more money than anybody else in this country just a few short decades ago. And we're sitting here, educated people, and for the most part, none of us had a clue even who this guy was. Not that we've never met him. Not that we didn't know his picture. But even his name isn't registering in our heads. And it wasn't just that he had some money or he was the richest guy in Brownsburg or he had more money than anyone in this whole country. We're sitting here and we have no idea who this guy is. And I'll tell you, listen, I had no idea who this guy was. I had to, you know, Wikipedia this thing and get before Bill Gates is what I ultimately had to do. He was the richest man for quite some time. So the point should be there for us. Does it really make a difference how much money we have? H.L. Hunt, John Klug are both dead and gone. Their money has been spread around like you couldn't believe. We have no idea who they are. But sometimes we get confused in thinking that the more money that I have, the more difference that that makes, the more power that I have, the more difference that that makes, the more popularity that I have, the more difference that it makes. Solomon says that none of those things make a difference. Our own world, our own experiment, 
that we've just done says, uh, it doesn't make a difference. Life without God is futile. Secondly, number two, big picture, big, big ticket reflective thing from the book of Ecclesiastes is the absolute certainty of death. The absolute certainty of death. It is throughout the book. The point is made. It doesn't make a difference. Again, how much money you have. It doesn't matter what age you are, what gender you are, what race you are, how much education you have, how much money you have, how many people you know. It doesn't make a difference in any of those things. Death is always hovering. Now, I want you to think about that, not in a, in a sad, scary movie kind of way, but the reality that Solomon paints and continues today is that for each of us, death is hovering just above us. How often are we reminded of that? There isn't a year, a year goes by that we are not reminded of that point over and over and over and over again. I cannot remember a year, this one included, where older folks had not passed away, where middle-aged folks had not passed away, where young folks had not passed away. I cannot remember a year, this one included, where people do not die of disease very quickly or an accident immediately. Whether there was evil involved or whether it was just a simple accident, every single year we are reminded over and over and over again of the absolute certainty of death. I'm not standing up here trying this morning to be morbid or to be scary in any way, but it is a huge ticket reflective reality that has to be understood. Solomon will write about in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want you to understand that what this understanding does is it gets us to a spot. This understanding, this peace enables us to get somewhere. It enables us to get to a question like this. Are we living for the Lord? Are we living for things of this world? And the interesting point about that question is it needs to be answered with some urgency. It needs to be answered with some urgency because death is hovering. And so we've got to be able to answer a question like this. Am I living for the Lord or am I living for the world? I want you to look at these three passages with me. In the book of 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse uh, 10, you see this point made over and over and over. You have at the very end of Paul's life, as he's writing about all of these people that are important in his life, and he's writing about all of these people that he's thinking about, he writes there in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly. And he says, For Demas has forsaken me, 
having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. The point here is that, listen, here is a choice that was made. A choice that Demas makes. He says, I'm going to choose the things of this world. John will write in the book of 1 John in chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, what I like about this passage is the choice that must be made. You see, John makes it clear there, there has got to be a choice made. He says, don't love the world, don't do that, don't choose that, because if you love the world, the love of the Father isn't in them. And so the point that he makes is you you can't have both of those things. You've got to choose one. You've got to choose one. He says, don't love the world or the things of the world. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'll tell you, as we kind of close this lesson and close this year, we need to be thinking about that and thinking about this question. What, are, what is driving the decisions that I make? My everyday decisions. It's the things of this world that's driving my decisions. The choices I make, the things that I do, the things that I say, the things that I wear. What's driving those decisions? Is it the world or is it the Lord? You see, when we live our life for the world instead of for the will of God, your perspective is broken. As Solomon will say in the book of Ecclesiastes, you are looking at things under the sun. That's as far as your perspective goes. Not, and I'll add, above the sun where we need to be. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Perspective. And we think about this book in and of itself and all of the specifics that are there. To me, it is those two things that drive the train. Building our life on anything outside of the will of God is futile. Grasping for the wind. I want you to think just for a second as we close the silliness of that picture. Just the silliness of it. Imagine, if you will, if you're taking a walk in the park and you see someone off to the side in a field just doing one of these. And you're looking and you're staring and you're watching and you're confused. And so you go over for a conversation because maybe they need help, right? And so you ask them, hey, 
What's going on? Is there a bug? You know, maybe you've got a, a, a bee or a wasp or something. Is there a, a, a giant spider web maybe that you're fighting with? They're like, no, none of those things. Just trying to catch the wind. And then you look again because surely they're just kidding, right? Well, that was a joke and you're looking for that cue that we often get, but none's there. None's there. They're serious about that. And they say, listen, I, I, and I'm like, well, how, how long are you going to work at that? And, and until, I, until I get it. And you leave. And think about what you think. It's a crazy person. It's a crazy person. That's what Solomon says that we're doing if we live our life based on things of this world, grasping for the wind. And God is looking down, and if he sees that, he's thinking, why, 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 are, you, why are you doing that? We have an opportunity here to think about where we are, maybe a little of where we've been to make sure that we're not grasping at the wind, that we're grasping for something concrete. And there is one concrete thing to hold on to. It is God and his will. That's it. That's the only concrete thing to grab hold of. And you're either holding on to that or you are grasping in a vain, futile way at things around you. Well, Tim is going to lead us in a song of invitation, and it gives us an opportunity to be reflective, to think about our situation, our relationship with God. We've made the point already. It is the only relationship that ultimately will make a difference. We've made the point that one of the realities is the end of things is hovering above us, and it can come at any moment. So what that means is this opportunity that we have right now is a blessing from God. Let's not lose sight of that. And it may be that we can help you in some way this morning. If we can, you let us know as we stand and sing.